Carlton, thank you so much for being here at Allegheny Kiski Valley Historical Society for your presentation that is about discovering these letters, Civil War letters in the family, and your journey tracing back the history. Exactly. So it's partly my story, the idea that I have a history background as a history teacher, but I never imagined having a find like this myself to um, come across in my parents' attic. They passed away, clearing out their house, and find this enormous collection of Civil War letters, and then having to decide what to do with them, putting all the information together. But it's also then the story of the two soldiers who wrote these letters, that these were two soldiers who helped to make American history, fighting in all of these major battles of the Civil War, but they also recorded what they were doing and preserved that history. And so it all comes together, I think, into a very interesting story. Well, we're gonna hear your entire presentation here in just a moment, but I wanna ask you, do you do many of these talks throughout the community? Right, there are um, lots of uh, interest in the Civil War that uh, if you go into a bookstore very often, if you go to the history section, you'll find that history sections dominated by two things, the Civil War and World War II. You know, that's what people are interested in. and. People here in uh, Pennsylvania, so many will be going to Gettysburg over and over and over again. There's just something really fascinating about the Civil War. There are organizations all around the country called Civil War Roundtables, hundreds of them around the country. And uh, these are people that meet usually once a month and discuss issues involving the Civil War. And so one of the things I've been doing a lot lately is traveling around, talking to different groups. I just got back uh, a few days ago from talking to the Cincinnati Civil War Roundtable. There's um, five or six roundtables around the Pittsburgh area, and uh, they're um, all over the country. And so I talk to those groups and also historical societies where you have a lot of people interested in America's past, and I go in and tell this story. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Jim Thomas, president of this organization right now. Today we have a real treasure. We're going to hear about something that Carlton found in his uh, attic, turned it into a wonderful book right there. And Carlton is a retired history teacher. I'm sure he's going to tell you more about his life story. And this is being recorded. Jim, could I say just one thing? Sure. So we are recording this, and this will be on an episode of Alakiski Chronicle, our podcast. Did you know we had a podcast here? Podcast is basically an audio program that's on the internet, goes out to the world. So we have one here. We started one last year, and we are now episode seven, eight. We're we're going up, and, and the purpose of the podcast is to celebrate and promote the wonderful local history that is offered by the museum here and the Heritage Society. We think the world needs to know about the wonderful displays and the archive here. So. If you go to the Facebook page or the web page, you'll see a link to the podcast. We're very excited to be here to hear Carlton and to record this today. Yeah, well, thank you uh, all for coming out this afternoon. And I have a story to tell you. And it's a story that starts with something that probably many of you have had to experience at some point in your life. And that is about uh, 12 years ago. After my parents had passed away, we had to clear out their house. And if you've ever had to go through that experience, you know, you know there can be a lot involved in that, that it's not just 
furniture and appliances, but there's all that stuff, you know, all the things in drawers and closets and storage areas and trying to decide what are you going to keep and what are you going to throw out and what are you going to do with all. And so now this was the house I'd grown up in and I've spent my adult life living and working in the uh, South Hills, uh, teaching at Thomas Jefferson High School and living in Castle Shannon. But where I grew up, where my parents' house was, is actually not all that far from here. They were from uh, Churchill, which is on the other side of the river, uh, just past Penn Hills over in that area. And it was the house I grew up in, so I wasn't expecting to find much I wasn't familiar with in that house. But up in the attic, we found this very old wooden box that I'd never seen before. You open it up, and it ends up it is just jammed full of very old letters which turned out to be letters written by two young men. They were uh, soldiers in the Civil War. They were from Vermont, part of what was called the Vermont Brigade. And the Vermont Brigade was the um, second through the sixth infantry regiments from Vermont. It was a brigade that was renowned for their um, courage and uh, their fighting ability. It was also the brigade that had the highest casualty rate of any brigade in the Union Army partly because of the way they fought. But anyway, we had all these letters from these two soldiers. And when I say we had a lot of letters, um, you know, I've seen entire books based on someone having like 20 letters from a Civil War soldier, 40 letters or 60 letters. Well, I have about 250. So it's an enormous collection. A lot of them very long, very involved letters and uh, really good letters. And so the next question for me was, well, what am I going to do? with all these letters. What's the next step? I had a, um, a background in history, my um, master's uh, from Ohio University and PhD from Pitt, but I'd never specialized in civil war. You know, I didn't have a great background there. So the um, next step, and uh, this is a picture of the letters, and this is the box they were in, all in their original envelopes, addressed back to their hometown in Vermont, a little town called Williamstown, Vermont. So, anyway, the next step in all of this was um, to call in a couple of friends who were much more Civil War buffs. These were two teachers from Keystone Oaks, Ed Hale and uh, Bill Lutz, and they looked over the letters and said, yeah, these are really, really good letters. You know, we have to do something with this. So then the next step was to call in our wives, my wife Carol and Ed's wife Nancy, and the five of us began to meet weekly to go over these letters. So the first step was to get the letters all organized, get them in acid-free folders to protect them, get them uh, set up by who wrote each letter, from where to whom, get them chronological, all set up that way. Then came the process of trying to read through the letters. And so we would have these weekly meetings to try to read the letters together. And it ended up being a, uh, a very difficult process. If you think of a, a piece of paper folded to be a letter, so you have page one in the front, you open it up and have pages two and three, and four in the back, or if you hold the letter this way, you've got one to the right and four to the left. And that's what we have here then. So this is uh, page one and page four. This letter written by one of our soldiers, their last name was Martin. This one is written by uh, Henry. He writes it to his brother who had not yet joined. So this is from a camp in front of Richmond back in June of 1862. He writes this letter to his brother. He starts off, dear brother. He gets to the end of the letter down here, signs his name, and then thinks of something else he wants to write but they had paper shortages. He doesn't want to waste a whole nother sheet of paper. So he turns the paper sideways and writes directly across what he's already written and then signs it a second time. 
up there. This was called cross-writing, and it was done quite often in the Civil War, and unfortunately done very often by our soldiers. So we have lots of letters that are in this style, which was uh, made it very difficult to go through them. This is a um, letter written a month later from uh, July 1862, same thing, it gets to the end, turns it on the last page, does the cross-writing. Or another thing he would sometimes do is, as he would start getting towards the end of a letter, he would start to write much smaller. And that would always make it real difficult as we'd uh, be um, trying to figure out what, the, what those words were. Or another thing that uh, he would do very often is it seems like when he would start a letter, he'd be writing real slowly and carefully and the handwriting be real nice and relatively easy to read. But then as the letter goes on, it would become increasingly sloppy and uh, difficult to read and then throwing in things out the bottom. Or this one, just sort of a little bit of everything. Not only does he start writing more sloppy and smaller, but then goes back to page one and throws in some cross-writing there. So we would sit there in our weekly meetings, holding these letters, turning them this way and that way, trying to figure out uh, what a word was, what direction it was going. Sometimes we would sit for like two or three minutes in silence or just mumbling to ourselves, you know, and then usually somebody would get the word, they'd shout it out. We'd say, yeah, that's it. And then we'd go on to the next word and on and on like that through these letters. So it took us several years just to get through the letters once. And then we went back to square one, started all over again, and began, because we'd skipped over a lot of words we couldn't read, now we knew the handwriting better, and we were able to go back and go through them all again, and this time fill in the gaps and get it all very, very well set up. So that was one thing we were doing. Another thing we would do is start to travel, that we would go to the battlefields, show our letters to the uh, park rangers and historians and get, uh, get tours based on that, and also traveling up to Vermont to research our two soldiers and learn more about them and the other people in the letters. So this is the little town that they're from. It's called Williamstown, Vermont. It's in central Vermont. Williamstown's about five miles south of Barrie, Vermont, which is about five miles south of the state capital of Montpelier. And my father was, had grown up in Barrie. So we always figured these two soldiers had to be from my father's side of the family, since uh, this town is so close to where he grew up, although we didn't have any other knowledge about them uh, starting off aside from that. But anyway, we uh, went up to visit this town early on in the project, and um, this uh, church, this congregational church, is the church of our two soldiers and is still standing today. In fact, uh, just to jump ahead a little bit, when we were up there this last fall, one of the things we were amazed with in our letters was how fast the mail went back in those days, that they would oftentimes be responding to letters that had only been mailed a few days earlier. And people would send care packages, perishable goods that they would send that the soldiers would get and be able to eat. And one of the things that their church oftentimes sent was chicken pies. So we were up there in the fall, we're driving past their church, and there's a big sign out front that says, chicken pie dinner tonight. So we were able to go to their church and eat their chicken pies, just like the day they had way back in Civil War times. But, um, but anyway, the first time we get up there, come into the center of town there, we see the church. Next to the church, over here is a Civil War monument. So we went over to check that out. You know, this is what we came up for, find out about the Civil War, and here's a monument. It has names of the uh, boys in the town that fought in the Civil War. We look all through it. Our two soldiers aren't listed. We're thinking, this is crazy. We drove all the way to Vermont. They're not here. But, you know, we have their letters. We have their military records. We know they're from this town. And so this was one of many mysteries we had to solve that made this all so interesting. I mean, there was a mystery for me of who these Martins were, because I knew my family history a little bit. And I'd never heard of anybody named Martin in our family. There was uh, the um, mystery of why their letters were in my 
father's attic and uh, the mystery of why my father never said to me, oh, by the way, you like history. You should see what I have up in the attic. I've got all these letters. None of this made sense. But anyway, this uh, mystery we did eventually get figured out, I think. We found out by going through old town records that when they built this monument in 1869, they decided to only put on the names of the soldiers from the town who were drafted to fill the town quota. Our two soldiers enlisted. Now, why would you leave off enlistees? We're, we're thinking there must have been some local political dispute of some sort. You know, it doesn't make sense otherwise to um, not honor your enlisted soldiers and leave them off the monument. But uh, that's what this town did for, um, for whatever reason. So next to, next building after the monument down here is the uh, local historical society. So we walked in there, building very uh, similar to this, talked to the person inside, told them a little bit about our letters. We said, uh, we know this was uh, 150 years ago, but the letters were addressed to someone named Chester Martin. That was the boy's father. We said, have you ever heard of a local farmer somewhere around here named Chester Martin? And the person at the historical society said, well, sure, Chester Martin. His house is right down the road. I'll give you directions. I said, all right. So we go down and find the house. And there it is, still there today. Not only is the house still there, it's now the front of a nursing home. They've taken out the back wall and built like an assisted living nursing home area that goes uh, to the back and to the side. But the original house is still there. And the original house is now like the, uh, the lobby and offices for the uh, nursing home. And not only that, but they've decorated the whole thing to give it a 19th century appearance inside. So we had no idea we were going to walk into this. We go walking in the front door of our soldier's house, and it looked like it did in Civil War times that there in the living room is where they would have sat and read these letters that we were reading, and it was just like that even now today. So we've been amazed by so many things, and then we found out where our soldiers were buried, went up to the cemetery, walking around just you know, reading the names uh, on all the different markers and trying to find them. We see this kind of like railed-in section towards the back, walk over. Sure enough, that was our Martin family with the um, soldiers and other family members buried there in this section. So it's, it's been uh, you know, just one uh, amazing thing after another that we find as we would go through this. Now, as far as our soldiers, uh, first of all, Henry. So Henry is the uh, younger of the two brothers, but he enlists first, enlisted just after the first battle of Bull Run. And as far as we can tell, he's someone who was uh, relatively friendly, well-liked, kind of person, even though he's not smiling there in the photo, but people didn't smile in um, portraits or photos or anything back in those days. When this uh, regiment was first formed, it was young guys from the same county. Uh, many of them are going to know each other. They've been in school together. And they were allowed to choose some of their officers. And they uh, elected Henry to um, be a sergeant. And so they must have respected them, you know, liked them to some degree in order to, uh, to choose him to be one of the people in, uh, in leadership. Uh, Henry is someone who uh, has a, um, a pretty good education for back in those days because at that point in time, there were not yet any public high schools in the United States. For most children, education would have ended at eighth grade. But for families that had a little bit more money, they would send their children to private secondary schools. And that's what happened with Henry. He attended Barry Academy in uh, nearby Barry. And so he, uh, he has a, a good education. And his brother, uh, Francis, attended a um, school over in New Hampshire, the um, Kimball Union Academy, which is a private school which still exists today. 
and even their sister, and that was especially unusual at, at that point in the 19th century for a um, young girl from a rural farming community like this to be sent to a private secondary school. But she was. Uh, Caroline attended um, Mrs. Peabody's Select Family School for Young Women on the campus of Dartmouth University in um, Webster Hall in Dartmouth. And so uh, this is clearly a family that values education. And I think that's one of the reasons our letters tend to be so good, because um, th th these soldiers have a better education than most of the other soldiers. And, and I've read other books you know, based on soldiers' letters and things, and oftentimes the letters just are not very well written, and they're sometimes just not that good. But these are really well-written and very interesting letters that these soldiers put together. We also had in with our letters all kinds of other things, like lots of um, handwritten orders that had gotten mixed in with the letters, officer commission papers that were um, in with them. And through trying to make the family connection to these soldiers, I ended up discovering a cousin I didn't even know I had. And after I got in contact with her, it turned out she had a few of the letters that had gotten separated from our much larger collection. And she had Henry's sword. His, uh, sword, his full name was actually William Henry. He went by Henry. But, uh, so it's W.H. Martin, Company A, 4th Vermont Infantry. So it's just been uh, yeah, one, one find after another as we've um, gone through this project. So now on to Henry's story. Henry will be heading for Washington, D.C. And just to give you a taste of uh, some of the letters, in his early letters, as he's moving out, now, he's never been far from home before, so this is a real experience to go off with all these thousands of young men to um, go to the nation's capital. Um, he'll be going by steamboat and train to get to Washington, D.C., passing through Baltimore. And finally, they arrive at Washington, D.C. He says, we left the cars, marched to a place called the Soldier's Rest. There we stacked arms, ate supper, spread our blankets, and slept the rest of the night. In the morning, we were detailed to unload the baggage cars. After dinner, we received orders to march to our encampment, about three-fourths of a mile from the city of Washington. There we joined a large body of 40,000 men. I never saw such a sight before. There were thousands of cavalry, flying artillery, infantry. The cavalry were on drill when we arrived. They attracted considerable attention. Their charging at full speed accompanied with flying artillery was a grand sight. So this is all a very, very exciting thing for Henry at first to to see all of this. He's also going to be doing something that, uh, that would have never occurred to me. And, and this is their camp, by the way. This is, um, Vermont, this is uh, Vermont Brigade soldiers at their camp outside Washington. Their, their camp actually was um, on the grounds of where the CIA headquarters is today. And so I thought that maybe I should just show up sometime at the CIA headquarters and tell them about the letters and say, okay, if I just sort of look around and ch check out the area and uh, see what they, they say. But, um, but at any rate, um, Henry's going to be doing something that would have never really occurred to me. He's going to be doing a lot of sightseeing. He'll be going into the Capitol, go across the chain bridge, and on the other side of the bridge, get public transportation into the city. He'll be going to the Smithsonian, to uh, the Capitol building, visiting statues and things, and all around town having a uh, real interesting time of it. So things are going great for a while, but then come some problems. Problems with sickness. That you have this situation of all these thousands of young men, many of whom have never been far from home before, all mixed together in these camps, there's um, problems with immunities. There's issues involving they don't know a whole lot about proper hygiene and cleanliness and things. And so people start to get sick. And Henry will be writing, he'll be in camp there for, for many months and writing uh, lots of letters about the problems with the illnesses. One letter he writes, there's a great amount of sickness in the regiment. 
Charles Lynn's very bad. John Green's unwell. Faye's on the sick list. Also, Deck Jones, Cosgrove, Frank Flint. Of course, his parents know all these people because they're all from the same county there. Measles and mumps are prevailing extensively. Newell Carlton's quite sick with typhoid fever, but we hope he'll soon be better. Well, his friend, Newell, uh, does not improve. He write, Henry writes home in a later letter, As soon as he was confined to his bunk, I had him moved to my tent where it was more still and more spare room. He remained there about two weeks and received as good a care and attention as could be given under the circumstances. He was not in his right mind at nights, constantly spoke of his father, and was finally removed to the hospital. There he grew worse every time his fever changed, and last Saturday night, about 8 p.m., he died. And so this became the first of many friends and relatives of Henry's who will die in this war, and things just keep getting worse. And later letter he says, when we left Vermont, my regiment numbered 1,100 strong, able-bodied men. Over 60 have now died of disease in camp, and a great number more are sick. My company numbered 101. Today, only 36 privates are available for duty. So it's just getting worse and worse. He writes in a later letter, I see sights that would make any one of you at home shudder. Almost every morning we see outside the hospital a corpse of one of our fellow soldiers. They are to remain until the next day. Finally, the corpse is dressed and placed in a pine coffin, ready for burial. This is a photograph of Vermont soldiers at their camp, burying their dead. Henry goes through in his letter the whole step-by-step -step process of what they do at their burial ceremonies. I guess at the very end of that letter, he says, all of these scenes we become familiar with and think but little of. So it's like just an everyday thing. Someone else has died, they take him out, they bury him, they go back to their practicing. But, uh, it's uh, gonna be a very, very difficult time for them there in the camp. Now, one of the things also that caused us to, uh, to take so long to get through all these letters was we kept going off on tangents. We'd, we'd learn, Henry would write about friends, relatives, from back home or there with him in the uh, camp. And then we start researching those people and finding out all these stories that uh, were so interesting about them. Just to give you one example about that, I want to tell you about the, um, the Lind family. This is uh, Isaac Lind, this is Henry's uncle from back there in Williamstown. Early in the war, Isaac Lind is going to uh, have a commission and be going out west where he will uh, be in charge of a small group of soldiers way out west in New Mexico. Early in the war, a group of Texans came across the border. Isaac Lynn took his men out of their fort to take on these Texans. They fought a uh, very, very small, somewhat unknown battle. It's called the Battle of Messiah. There was only about 300 men on both sides, so it's not one of your big Civil War battles, and only about 20 casualties. But Isaac Lynn, early on, pulled his men back to their fort. He decided that, that was not really a strong position to be in, so he decided to have his men march to another fort. Unfortunately, some of the men could not bear the thought of leaving their stores of whiskey behind. So they filled their canteens with whiskey instead of water. Next day, out in the hot desert sun, people were becoming dehydrated, getting sick. Uh, the Texans caught up with them and surrounded them, and Isaac Lynn surrendered his entire command. So he will be relieved of his position. He'll be back in Washington, D.C. while Henry is there in camp. Isaac Lynn is hanging around the camp because he's trying to get a meeting with Abraham Lincoln to give his side of the story. He also, Isaac Lynn had a son who's in the same regiment as Henry. And the two of them, as friends and cousins, they're going in, they're the, the two that are like sightseeing a lot around town. But Isaac Lynn also had a daughter. His daughter, Louise, was married to Brigadier General Frederick Dent. Frederick Dent, back in his school days at West Point, 
had been roommates with Ulysses S. Grant, and in fact, had introduced Grant to his sister, Julia, who Grant later married. So Henry's cousin, Louise, who he grew up with back there in Williamstown, is not only married to Brigadier General, but she's sister-in-law to Ulysses S. Grant. And Isaac Lynn has another daughter. His other daughter, Mary, is married to Major Norman Fitzhugh, who's Assistant Adjutant General for General Jeb Stuart, who, if you're familiar with the Civil War, is the great cavalry leader on the Confederate side. And this is just one, this is a tiny town. It was just amazing. We would find these families and the impacts they would have uh, on the, the country and things that would happen later in, in history. Uh, it, it was just uh, quite a story to put this all together. But now back to Henry. At this point in the war, he is going through all this training in Washington, D.C. under General McClellan. Um, General George McClellan in charge of the Army, the, the Potomac, this very, very large Union Army in the East. And McClellan will be getting a reputation as the war goes on for being extremely slow and cautious. Well, Lincoln eventually uh, trying to pressure him to go into action to do something. And uh, McClellan just seemingly uh, not wanting to do anything. And that attitude was shown in some of Henry's letters as well. In one letter he said, we still remain at camp, so you can see how many expectations we have, but how few are realized. Soldiers remark quite often that they will never have a chance of seeing a rebel if they stay in this army. So that was the feeling that uh, you know, they want to get out and do something. And instead, McClellan is just delaying. But as it turns out, even though it just seemed like uh, McClellan was sitting around, didn't seem to be doing anything, actually he is coming up with a plan. And the plan he comes up with is going to involve leaving from their camp around Washington, D.C. and transporting the entire Army of the Potomac by sea down to Fort Monroe, then invading Richmond from the east. And that way, trying to avoid a lot of these um, Confederate defenses north of Richmond. And so that is the plan. And Henry will be part of this massive troop movement then that arrives at Fort Monroe and starts moving up the peninsula. Now, they will be moving very slowly and f having some uh, small engagements as they um, are pushing some of the Confederate defenses back towards Richmond. We have right in this area down here is the Warwick River. And among the uh, small battles of the Warwick River, there's gonna be a small one fought here at the Battle of Dam Number One. And once again, unless you're a real Civil War buff, you probably aren't not familiar with the Battle of Dam Number One. But for Henry, this is a very significant battle because this is the first time he's really gone into combat. And so he writes home saying that this was a memorable day in my experience, the first time I ever faced cold lead from an enemy's guns. And he talks about how they get up at 4 a.m. and the officers give them like pep talks and get them ready for this battle. They go out into the battle, he says, our colonel led the charge, flourishing his sword, encouraging his men on. Not a man flinched from his duty. It was a desperate charge, I'll assure you, in the face of thousands of rebels. My regiment lost only 10 killed. Other regiments suffered fearfully, and the enemy must have lost hundreds of our shot and shells kept burning over the rifle pits. And this is a modern day picture of the area where the uh, Confederate earthworks are still there at dam number one. And uh, uh, so Henry would be charging into this area where the Confederates would be behind um, these, these earthworks. At the end of his letter, he says, I never expected to feel as I did on the occasion. After the first few shots, I felt perfectly self-possessed and ready to go anywhere we're ordered. This is a hasty outline of what occurred, but I must close. And if spared to survive another battle, I shall write as soon as possible. His mother must have loved closings like that. You know, if I'm not killed in the next battle, then I'll, I'll be sure to write home as soon as it's over. We'll just uh, see how it goes. But um, at any rate, uh, Henry will be part of this force now that starts moving up the uh, peninsula. And they will ultimately 
be pushing all the way to within about 12 miles of Richmond. And along the way, Henry's seen some real interesting sights. Like, for example, the um, famous battle between the Mary Mac and the Monitor that occurred. Henry was able to get a real close look at the Monitor and uh, write home about what he saw. He, he wasn't real impressed with it, but uh, it would look something like this. And another thing he's writing about is the um, hydrogen-filled balloons that were being used. They were um, used for surveillance. He's a number of letters talking about uh, how the Confederates were so mad about uh, and firing at these balloons because the balloons were sending the information about their troop movements and, uh, and the, the numbers of uh, defenses that are out there and that, that sort of information. So they do make it, as I said, very, very close to Richmond. And things are about to change, though, because it's around this point in the war that General Joseph Johnston, the Confederate uh, leader, was severely injured and ends up being replaced. He'll be replaced by Robert E. Lee, and Lee decides that rather than just build the defenses around Richmond, the best thing to do is to attack out into McClellan's forces. And what we will get then is a whole week of fighting. It's called the Seven Days. And during the Seven Days, the Union Army is going to be pushed back. We're going to have Henry involved in a lot of battles as the Army is being uh, pushed down, uh, down to Malvern Hill. He'll be uh, fighting a lot of battles up in this area. He'll be uh, fighting, for example, at Savage's Station. And Savage's Station, uh, oh, and also um, White Oak Swamp, we'll take first. White, at White Oak Swamp, Henry was part of the Union rear guard, which is trying to slow down Stonewall Jackson's army, which is coming in from the Shenandoah Valley to join up with Lee. And this uh, defensive position at White Oak Swamp did slow Stonewall Jackson down significantly, so he was not there at Malvern Hill to help Lee at the um, end of this campaign. But then Savage's Station, Henry writes about how they had to leave many of the Union wounded soldiers behind because a large Confederate army was approaching. And I found this photograph which shows just that. These are Union soldiers who were being left behind. They couldn't be transported as the rest of the Union army moved out. So Henry's involved in a lot of this fighting. But the end result of it all is that the uh, Union army has been pushed back. And as a result, Lincoln will see this as a defeat for the Union army. And so he's going to reduce General McClellan's authority and instead order McClellan to move the entire army north of Richmond to join up with General Pope. And under General Pope's leadership, they will attack Richmond from the north. So Henry's part of this force that's leaving from Malvern Hill, moving up north. But Lee figures out what's going on and moves much faster and gets up to the area to uh, take on General Pope. Pope thought he had Stonewall Jackson surrounded over here, doesn't realize that another division under Longstreet was coming in, hitting his flank. And as a result, this battle gets fought on the same battleground as uh, Bull Run. It's the second battle of Bull Run and another defeat for the Union Army, just like in the first battle of Bull Run. So Lincoln doesn't know what to do next in terms of leadership. He ends up meeting with McClellan and will restore McClellan's position of authority. McClellan now once again, has the job of stopping General Lee. Lee, at this point, has decided the time is right to invade up through Maryland into the north. But it's right at this time that the Union gets one of the biggest breaks in the war. Lee has divided his army into small groups coming up through Maryland to reunite later. One of Lee's commanders left the maps behind at a campsite that showed where all of the Confederate divisions were positioned. That gets turned over to McClellan. If McClellan had moved very, very quickly, he might have wiped out each one of these small groups. 
but McClellan does not. He does, um, and he does have some good reason to be careful because his thinking was, this might be a trap. Maybe these were left there on purpose to try to pull McClellan in. And so he will move into the area and Lee finds out what's going on. So Lee's going to be positioned up here around Sharpsburg along Antietam Creek, trying to get his army back together again and trying to slow down the Union advance. Union army is going to be moving through this mountain range, which is called South Mountain. There are several gaps where the Confederates will be trying to stop the Union from coming through. Henry is in the uh, Sixth Corps in the Franklin. They will be moving through Crampton's Gap, trying to get up into that area to get them across towards Antietam. And Henry will be involved in fighting in that area. We know from his letters that he was towards the end of the line in the front row. And here we have 4th Vermont. So right at the, at the end of the line, like he said, in the front, they're going to be charging uphill into these Confederate defenses. And so Henry would be uh, somewhere in this line here, charging up into these uh, Confederates who are uh, entrenched up above. There are so many Union soldiers, they outnumbered the Confederates so much, that the Confederates will retreat back towards Antietam. But they did what they tried, had been sent there to do. They've greatly slowed down McClellan's advance. So you know, I can't imagine what it'd be like to be in this line trying to go uphill into these kind of defenses. But after this battle, Henry writes home, and it seems that he has... Um, kind of, uh, well, he's sort of at the end of his rope here. He says, how long is this incessant fighting to continue? Ever since we left Washington, the cannon has been booming. It seems like a severe fight every day. I was never before exposed to such a galling fire. Many a bullet whistled seemingly very close to my head, but I did not feel like dodging, but felt perfectly cool and self-possessed. Still, you know, it's a hard place to stand in, but trusting in the Lord to protect me, I go forward wherever I am ordered. And where are they ordered? Well, to Antietam, the single bloodiest day of the Civil War. So right at the point where Henry's sounding like he's had enough of this fighting, he's about to go into the worst single-day battle of the Civil War. So what we have at Antietam is the, uh, the Sixth Corps won't be there right away. Antietam starts very early in the morning. And the Sixth Corps, because they've been fighting here at Crampton's Gap, will be not getting in until um, about uh, 11 o'clock in the morning. But the battle starts real early. We're um, a lot of fighting up in the, around the Dunker Church and Westwoods uh, starting uh, at, at dawn. The uh, Sixth Corps comes in late, and when they get there, they start making a difference right away. They will be coming down towards the Sunken Road, Bloody Lane area, and pushing Confederates back. But then McClellan orders them to halt and return and places them back up here in reserve. The reason is McClellan, looking over the Confederate Army, was convinced that this could not be all there was. Based on his intelligence reports, he thought the Confederate Army was almost twice the size it actually was. So he decided to pull the Sixth Corps back to set up a hillside up here and then use them later when the rest of the Confederate Army came out. But there was no rest of the Confederate Army. If you visit Antietam, the uh, old Vermont Brigade has a, uh, a marker just down from the uh, information center showing the point where they drove onto the field originally and pushed the Confederates back, uh, Henry and the Fourth Regiment. But um, as I said, then pulled back after advancing to that point. And so as it turns out, the um, Battle of Antietam is a Union victory. But Lee is able to retreat and still has his army intact. And so Lincoln's not going to be real happy with it. But it's also just tremendous casualties. In the Battle of Antietam, in this one-day battle, there were more American casualties than in all of the battles of the American Revolution combined, plus all of the battles of the War of 1812 combined, plus all of the battles of the Mexican War combined, all in one day at Antietam. 
And Gettysburg will later have even far more casualties, but Gettysburg's fought over three days. This was all uh, just in this one day. And so with all these casualties, plus the fact that Lee's army has gotten away, Lincoln is not happy with this. Henry writes about the casualties. He says, after the battle was the worst of sights, every house was filled to the brim, as thick as they could lie. Here we have one of those houses at Antietam being used as a hospital. Still there was not room. All the barns were filled the same way. Still there was lack of room. Nearly 100 had to lie out of doors. Many remained on the field three days. Many did not have their wounds dressed for two days. Their wounds in some instances became maggoty. The dead had to be piled in heaps and burned as it was impossible to bury them all. When I showed that letter to a historian in Antietam, he said he had heard stories that supposedly there were so many dead bodies, they couldn't bury them all, so they just started stacking bodies up and burning them. He said he never before saw a firsthand account like this saying, yes, that's what we did. We just burned the bodies. And here it was in this, uh, in this letter. At any rate, the next step in all this is a change in leadership because Lincoln is not happy with McClellan. He'll be replaced with General Burnside. So with General Burnside, we get a um, new word in the English language with uh, sideburns for his uh, facial hair, but also a new plan. Burnside's plan is going to be to move the Army of the Potomac very quickly down to Fredericksburg, to have pontoons brought down the river, put pontoon bridges in place, have the army quickly cross to Fredericksburg, move up to the heights above the town, and wait for Lee's army to arrive. So that was the plan, and it might have worked. It could, it could have been a uh, good plan if everything had just fallen into place perfectly, but that's not the way it's going to work out. The army does get very quickly down to the river outside of Fredericksburg, but the pontoons aren't there. And they sit and they wait, and they wait. And while they're waiting, the Confederate army arrives, and they will go to the heights above Fredericksburg, so they will be the one in the strong position. Once the pontoons arrive, it's going to be difficult even just putting the pontoon bridges in place, being fired at the whole time, and then crossing over to Fredericksburg. Probably the um, prudent thing to have done would have been for Burnside to say, well, this plan didn't work. We'll try something else. But the problem is, this is December of 1862. The Emancipation Proclamation goes into effect January 1st. There's great political pressure on Burnside to have a victory before Emancipation Proclamation goes into effect. And faced with that, he goes ahead and launches the attack. So if you visit Fredericksburg today, you probably spend a lot of time up here um, where the stone wall is, because that's where most of the Union forces are going to be coming across through the town, up the hill, decimated before this stone wall. Or if you've ever seen the movie um, Gods and Generals, it shows a very clear example of how, how all these regiments go through the town, up the hill, and get defeated. But there's another part to this battle as well, a couple miles down river. And this is where Franklin's Sixth Corps, that Henry's a part of, this is where they're fighting. More pontoon bridges were put into place. And the plan here was to try to break through Stonewall Jackson's defenses, get behind the Confederates, and attack them from that direction. So Henry, uh, we know from his letters, was positioned along Deep Run Creek up here. And now if you do visit Fredericksburg, you probably won't be spending much time down here because whereas this is all national park, this area is uh, developed today. In fact, there's a Wawa convenience store around there where um, Henry was, but the creek's still there. So we were able to walk you know, with our copies of the letters through the gas pumps and past the convenience store and up behind where the uh, creek was running and able to see where Henry was positioned up on, the, on top of a little hill 
where for a large part of this battle, he's looking down. In fact, we have a, um, this is a blow up of that. So Deep Run Creek is um, right up here. Henry is positioned right along the creek and is seeing um, a lot of this fighting take place. Now, much of this fighting is these blue arrows, Union regiments trying to break through and getting stopped, unable to get through those defenses. But there's also one big red arrow up here, which is coming right at Henry. These were North Carolina regiments who felt that uh, there's artillery back right in here behind uh, these Vermont troops. If they could break through the Vermont troops, they could capture the artillery. So they're going to try to come up alongside the creek to do that. Henry is um, going to be then part of this group trying to stop them. He will be writing about this in his letter. He says, I ordered a retreat of a few rods, halted, commenced firing. Still they came and gave another volley, wounding six men. Just then, I saw the third regiment coming to my, my assistance. Well, while this is all taking place, Henry had a friend who was uh, back behind here in, um, in reserve who apparently liked to draw. He um, took out a piece of paper and drew what was happening. And this was in with our letters. So it's kind of hard to read. Right over here it says 4th Vermont. So this is Henry's regiment positioned here. And this one says 3rd Vermont. So they had been up on this hillside, but these are the North Carolina troops that pushed them back down. And here he says they halted and regrouped and are firing back. And he said the third regiment came to their assistance. The third regiment's coming along here. And then the next thing he says is that then our batteries opened. So the cannon are back behind them now firing over their heads into the North Carolina troops. It says uh, this staggered them. They turned and ran with us after them. We retook our old position. The, um, they lost, I should judge, 100 men. The ground was strewed with dead all the way back to their old position, after which they ceased firing. So the Vermont troops have done their job. They have uh, stopped this um, Confederate advance. But overall, Fredericksburg is a um, huge Confederate victory that um, up at the Stonewall area, the Union troops just decimated trying to get up into that area. And so Union Army has to retreat back across the river. Henry writes, thus ended the fight. What we've accomplished, I do not see. I hope something. Our whole loss is reported 18,000. Sunday, there was a flag of truce and the wounded brought off. The Confederates are very friendly when a flag of truce is up. The lines immediately join each other and exchange coffee for tobacco. I crossed the line Sunday and saw some of their dead and wounded where our regiment had fought. The enemy are also very eager to have the war ended. Monday, we were relieved and went back to the rear. That night, the whole army was ordered across the river and remained there ever since. I've been in battles before, but not in one equal to this last one. How I ever escaped, I cannot imagine. Exposed to solid shot grape and canister and rifle balls by the volley, it seems as though I must have been shielded by some unseen power. I was the object of sharpshooters, being so I could not get much cover, so I could do nothing but stand up and see them fire at me. I had the privilege of seeing all that was going on and to see a rebel regiment advance on us. Also to see a battle in the open field. I've seen enough and hope never to see the like again. If I ever felt grateful, it was when darkness covered the field. And so the Union Army pushed back at this point across, to, um, across the river. The um, next uh, step in all of this is that the, um, well, the Army is very dejected now during this uh, winter, 1862, 1863. It's kind of like the low point for the Union Army. And Henry's letter is very depressing also. He writes home, This Potomac army is fast becoming converted into limbless men. 
Hobson Company B had his leg struck by solid shot, severed from the body except for a few ligaments, and thrown back on his side. That's one instance. Four out of Company B lost legs. One received eight bullets, and yet he's still alive. A man in Company G had one side of his face split open. Company D lost their captain, hit in the neck, severing the jugular vein. He lived a few moments only. In Company A, our first sergeant was hit in the hip, our fourth in the leg, our corporal in the arm. One private was hit as near the center of the forehead as possible. He fell forward and died instantly without a struggle. And on and on it goes, all of these um, terrible casualties he's writing about. Well, the um, next step in all this is going to be another change in leadership. Since Burnside has failed, we get a um, Lincoln trying again, turning now to um, General Hooker. So with General Hooker, we get a new plan of attack. Um, apparently, though, not a new word in the English language, because that had been the old story that supposedly Hooker was a very good, very good organization, saw to it that his men got a lot of their back pay. As a result, more prostitutes showed up at the camp, started being referred to as Hooker's girls, or eventually as Hooker's. But it turns out there are etymologists who study word origins who say that actually the words started to be used a few years earlier than this by sailors along the East Coast in the Sandy Hook area. And so apparently it just became, the word was popularized uh, as a result of, of General Hooker. But he also has a new plan. The new plan is going to be to attack very close to Fredericksburg, because the army is right across the river from Fredericksburg, but they're going to attack at Chancellorsville. Under this plan, what Hooker's going to do now, Hooker has a huge army, about 120,000 men. Lee only has about 65,000, so almost two to one advantage for the North. Hooker's plan is going to be to swing his cavalry all around Lee's army, Lee here in the middle, have most of the army go with General Hooker to Chancellorsville, have some of it stay at Fredericksburg to attack at uh, that same point as the last battle. Lee is going to be stuck in the middle, totally confused, not knowing what to do next as all these troop movements are all around them and end up uh, just being destroyed by Hooker's army. That was the plan. Once again, it won't work out that way because Lee will figure out what's going on and Lee will go against the conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom at the time was if you're outnumbered, you don't break up your army. You keep it intact. But Lee will divide his small army. So what Lee will do is leave part of his army behind under Jubal Early at the stone wall of Fredericksburg, take the rest of his army up to meet Hooker at Chancellorsville. Henry is the part that was left behind on the Union side, the Sixth Corps. So they're going to be crossing, just like in the Battle of Fredericksburg, crossing through the town, charging up the hill towards the stone wall. And this is a photograph which shows Sixth Corps soldiers preparing for that attack. Now, they don't know how strong the defenses are. You know, it might be just as bad as the Battle of Fredericksburg, but um, they're about to be sent up that hill. As it turns out, this time they take the hill. So Henry's part of this group, that this is the uh, Confederate defenses have been abandoned, that um, Henry's part of this group has taken the stone wall, and Henry thinks that's going to be a real significant thing. He writes home, Since I wrote you last, it's been great change in our position. Sunday, we carried the heights of Fredericksburg. We received showers of bullets and cannon shot, but we were determined to carry them, and we did. The whole hill was one flame of smoke and fire. We advanced, and they made a desperate stand. So Henry thinks this will make a great difference, but it won't because of what's happening over at Chancellorsville. As Lee approached Chancellorsville, he realized there was an unprotected area where he could send Stonewall Jackson back behind the Union forces. So Stonewall Jackson will attack from behind, drive the Union forces into um, a retreat. So instead of Hooker moving his soldiers all around, confusing Lee, 
Instead, Hooker will just move back into this horseshoe defensive position. Meanwhile, Lee's already divided his army twice. Now he divides it a third time and sends some of his troops back to take on the Union Sixth Corps that Henry's a part of. They'll fight here at Salem Church, and Union forces are defeated and have to retreat back across the river. When Hooker hears that the Sixth Corps is retreated, Hooker decides he must retreat as well, and so it's another horrible defeat for the Union Army. At that point, even though it's been a, um, a big victory for Lee, Lee is concerned that eventually Lincoln's going to find the right leader and be able to, um, to defeat his smaller army. So Lee decides now's the time to invade the North to try again. He is going to try to move his army up through Maryland and attack into central Pennsylvania. So the Confederate army moves up in that direction and Union army is following behind. We also get a change in leadership as now um, General Meade will be taking over the Army of the Potomac as they move up into Pennsylvania. And Henry is part of like the rear guard of this enormous Union army as it's moving up through Maryland. He writes home, we are now on our way to Maryland in all possible haste. We are expecting one of the roughest campaigns we ever had. Now this is in the middle of June, 1863. It's very hot and humid. They're marching sometimes 20 miles or more a day. He said, it is reported that 40 men have died on the road on account of the heat. Many are sunstruck. We never saw such hard marching before. We are covering the rear of the Potomac Army and have got the trains all safe within our lines. If this thing is properly managed, we will annihilate Lee's army. We're dreadfully worn down. Pray for us. Thousands are to be sacrificed within the next few weeks. Now, you couldn't be much more prophetic than that. This is three weeks before the Battle of Gettysburg. Henry says, thousands are about to be sacrificed in the next few weeks, but if we handle this right, we are going to destroy Lee's army. And that's going to be pretty much what's about to happen. When it begins in the first day, Henry's uh, Sixth Corps is about uh, 35 miles away. So they're going to be missing out the uh, first couple of days of this battle. So in the first day, Union forces are um, hit hard and pushed back and start forming this uh, famous horseshoe defensive position. Second day... Lots of fighting occurring in a lot of famous places in the uh, Peach Orchard and Devil's Den, uh, Little Round Top, with the uh, charge uh, by Chamberlain down Little Round Top, and uh, the wheat field. It's, it's interesting in the wheat field that uh, Henry had a cousin who was fighting down in that area, George Smith. George Smith was this real uh, friendly, kind of fun-loving sort of guy, always writing about the young girls he's met along the way and things. But um, in this battle, he is hit in the chest. Now, typically, in the Civil War, if you're hit in the chest, there's not a whole lot of chance of survival. In this case, though, the combination of distance and wind velocity and humidity and everything played a part caused him to be hit with enough force. He's knocked to the ground, rips open his shirt, and looks. The bullet had not penetrated. It had bounced off of him, and he's able to get back up and continue on in the battle. And ends up with a real interesting life later as time goes on, that after the war, he went out west with General Sheridan, fought in the Indian Wars out west, came back east to Philadelphia, went into business, and by the end of the century, he was one of the wealthiest people in Philadelphia society. But um, anyway, back to uh, Henry and the fighting. So the um, Sixth Corps arrives about uh, four o'clock in the afternoon the second day. They're under General Sedgwick. They will be placed right behind the little round top. So they are held in reserve, as it turns out, on the third day of fighting, if you're familiar with that battle, you know, General Longstreet did not agree with Lee. Longstreet 
felt that if you're going to fight, rather than hit the center of the lines, try to outflank them, try to move out around this direction, in which case, if his advice had been followed, they might have been going right into where Henry was located. But instead, Lee's going to decide, no, they've hit both ends of the fish hook. It's got to be the center. It's the weak point. And so Pickett's charge will go right into the middle of these defenses. That means Henry will not be actively involved in Gettysburg at all. He'll be back here in reserve. But because they were not involved in the battle, when Lee's army retreats in defeat, the Sixth Corps is sent to trail them back down into Maryland. And at Funkstown, Maryland, a couple weeks after the Battle of Gettysburg, there'll be a small engagement. Um, only 479 casualties at Funkstown, which pales in comparison to the 51,000 plus at Gettysburg. But Henry's one of the 479. He's hit in the uh, shoulder with shell fragments. So Henry's going to be out of the war for a little while. He'll be back home in Williamstown for about two months. And some interesting things will happen while he's back home. For, um, for one thing, he is um, going to end up engaged. But it's a secret engagement. And so we had another mystery to solve. Why a um, secret engagement? And we think we have it figured out. Henry had a little notebook he kept in, it was in with the letters. And in his notebook, he kept a record of every letter he received and every letter he sent during the war. Well, he, um, yeah, he must have liked to keep records for some, I don't know why he would do that. But uh, anyway, this young girl, Laura Ainsworth, he'd never once corresponded with her up until this time. Now, this is a small town. You know, they're on the same age. They obviously know each other, but they must not have been very close. Now he goes home on this medical leave and apparently just like really hits it off with Laura. But, and we know that they went on a picnic with their friends and he proposed. So we're thinking what must have been going on here was probably they felt that either her parents or his parents would not be happy about this whirlwind romance. So he's come home on leave and just like that, they're engaged. But they're excited. They want to tell someone. So they tell their friends but they swear their friends to secrecy for one year. They're not to tell anyone that the two of them are engaged. So then Henry will be returning to duty, but ends up not going into a battle so much as going into New York City because Lincoln has called for another draft, which results in huge draft riots in New York City where hundreds of people are killed in the draft riots. It just kind of seems like anywhere where there's big action in the East, Henry's always there, so now He's a part of this group that's putting down the draft rights in New York City and writes home about you know, the back and forth, talking with the people in the city about um, the rioting and how the army's going to respond to it. Now, something else that happens around this time is going to uh, be that Henry's brother went to the war, his brother Francis. And Francis is a very different personality from Henry. Francis had a lot of problems. He's the older brother, but he hadn't joined the army, had a lot of problems that um, seems that he uh, uh, had a lot of... Uh, health problems, like stomach disorders, but also he was, um, had like emotional problems, seems to have suffered from depression or what they would have called melancholy back in those days. And so even though Henry tended to think every young guy should be joining the war, not his brother, he'd written to his brother, you know, this is not for you, you should stay out of this. But Francis will decide to join. And there was a lot of pressure on young guys to join. And there was also financial incentives. Bounties were paid from the state and local governments. and uh, So for whatever reason, Francis finally decides he's going to do it. He will join the army. And once he gets in, uh, he also uh, writes, writes very, very well. He wrote um, secretly as a war correspondent using a pseudonym. And when we later found out what his pseudonym was, we were able to go back in Vermont to um, look at the um, 
on microfilm from the uh, from one chronicle and find all of his dispatches. So we were able to include those in with the letters of um, everything that Francis wrote during the war. But at any rate, um, uh, once he gets in, he's going to have some problems. Like, like it seems like Francis was someone who didn't have much of any friends. In one of his letters home, he writes that he's in a different regiment than Henry. He says he doesn't like going over to Henry's camp because there are too many guys from Williamstown in that regiment. And he hasn't liked seeing a lot of the people from his hometown. So got a lot of problems that way. But funny thing about France is going to be that you know, this war is going to destroy so many young men in so many ways, physically and emotionally. But Francis is going to thrive in this new environment. He is going to start doing really well. His health gets better than it's ever been before. He, um, he's going to attribute it to the outdoor living, making him healthy. He likes the food. He writes on one of his letters. He likes the camp rations better than home cooking, which you know, must have made his mother feel great to hear that one. And, uh, but he's doing really, really well. And Henry writes home, says they've been on a long march. He said Francis handled it better than Henry did. Henry's been doing this for years now. And another letter, Henry writes home. He says he was over to Francis's camp. He's writing to his parents. And he says, and Francis was happy. And he underlines the word happy. Like, can you believe it? <laughs> Francis is happy. He's finally found something where he fits in, he's good at. He does well in some of the early battles he's involved in. So things are um, going very, very well for Francis. But that won't last for long. We have a change in leadership as Lincoln tries once again, now replacing uh, Meade with uh, leadership under General Grant, recalled from the West. Grant was someone who Lincoln said, understood the terrible mathematics of this war. Terrible mathematics being that the North greatly outnumbered the South. And if you keep having enormous battles with all these huge losses, the South will not be able to keep up. And Grant is going to be someone who's going to be willing to do that, just keep throwing people into these battles. And so Grant will start off on his Overland campaign, starting off in the Battle of the Wilderness. And in the Wilderness, the Vermont Brigade, part of the uh, Sixth Corps up here, most of the early fighting in the wilderness will involve Warren's Fifth Corps. But then comes word that A.P. Hill's Corps is coming along the Orange Plank Road towards the Brock Road, trying to get control of that intersection. As a result, the Vermont Brigade is broken apart from the Sixth Corps, told to go down that intersection, hold the intersection, along with Hancock's Second Corps, which will join them. Unfortunately, Hancock's Second Corps did not get the orders. And so the Vermont Brigade arrived on its own at the intersection to take on this Confederate Corps. Vermont Brigade has about 2,800 men. They're going to be facing a Confederate Corps of 14,000 coming at them, and they refuse to retreat. Out of the 2,800 men, 1,234 casualties. But they hold the intersection long enough until finally Hancock's Corps arrived to um, reinforce them, and as a result, that pivotal intersection does get held. Among the uh, 1,034 casualties, both Henry and Francis are casualties. Henry much more severely. And as it turns out, Henry dies three days later in one of the hospital areas. Francis will be there by his side, able to write home to his parents about his um, brother's death. Francis will continue on, is first in the hospital in Fredericksburg, recovering from his wounds, but then rejoins as the Union Army keeps moving south and uh, Lee keeps moving, blocking them from Richmond. The day of the Cold Harbor attack, Francis joined the army, rejoined his regiment, and then we circling on down to Petersburg, fighting in that area. But then the Vermont Brigade gets, and the rest of the Sixth Corps 
is going to be sent up into Shenandoah Valley to join up with General Sheridan. They'll fight a big battle at Cedar Creek. At the Battle of Cedar Creek, Jubal Early's Confederates take the Union Army by surprise. In the early morning fighting, Francis sees one of his friends hit, goes over to help him. While he's doing that, Francis is hit just above the ankle. He'll be taken to one of the um, battlefield hospital areas, which would uh, be like this, where the surgeons are working. Ends up uh, being given chloroform to um, have his wound looked at. This is a surgeon's kit from the Civil War. And a surgeon's kit is gonna be composed mostly of saws and blades because that's what they did. You know, the real danger was infection. They didn't have any antibiotics or anything like that. If infection started to spread, they couldn't stop it, except by amputation. And so Francis is given chloroform, told they don't know if he's gonna be able, they'll be able to save his leg or not. He'll wake up and find that uh, they did have to amputate. He'll um, wake up out in one of these uh, outside recovery areas and his leg is amputated, uh, just the um, lower portion down around the ankle. He's then transferred to a, another hospital, better care in a military hospital like this. But what they found was the amputation had been done so poorly with bones still sticking out, they had to re-amputate much further up. After the second amputation, Francis ends up looking like this. And so was it all worthwhile for Francis, everything he went through? Well, in his last dispatch for the newspaper, he writes, uh, the 19th of October, now of historic note, was an episode in my life ending my career as a soldier and assisting me to act for the remainder of my days in a sphere entirely different from what I would have chosen. And then he tells the story I just told you, of getting shot and the two amputations. He gets to the end of his dispatch, he says, as this is the last of my series of letters as an army correspondent, I will say in conclusion that while I regret the casualty which has befallen me, still, it's only the fortune of a soldier, and I do not regret that I responded to my country's call, nor feel that I've served to no purpose and a just cause. Though I've never done all I could wish as a soldier, still I've endeavored to do my duty, not shrinking from danger or hardship when called upon, and I am satisfied. If others wish to engage in the same service, I would say to them, chances are that their lot may end up similar to my own, but the cause is worthy of the sacrifice, and I would bid them go forward. And that ends his dispatches. And so for Francis, it, despite all he'd gone through, it was all worth it for this cause. And for those of us who've been engaged in this whole process, it's been very worthwhile for us as well for the last 12, 13 years, all that we've been putting into this, going back to the early years, going up to Vermont, looking through military records and birth certificates and death certificates and marriage certificates, everything we could find. Uh, putting together a family tree, connecting eventually to the soldiers and celebrating up in Vermont and then eventually putting it all together into the book. I can remember way back when, we, when this project was first started, I, I'm telling my uh, younger daughter a little bit about the letters and how maybe someday I'd write a book about it. And she paused for a moment and said, uh, do you think you could um, add some vampires? Because uh, vampires are really in. Um, the, um, but I don't think the book really needed the vampires. It ended up being a really good story, just as it was, and we, uh, we really enjoyed putting the, um, the whole thing together. And so, questions? Yes. Now, he was made a sergeant right from the get-go. Was he ever promoted? Yeah, he became second lieutenant. Second, okay. Yeah. And when, when, when did that happen? That happened as they were um, moving uh, up towards Antietam. Okay, in 62. And he went into the draft 
the the riots in in New York City right yeah. after Gettysburg. Right. So many of these were racially motivated oh, that, yeah, that, in, that, in New York yeah. City. Mm-hmm. Did did he mention? And plus, you know, the slavery issue, especially yeah. after the emancipation. Did, did did they mention any of that in the yeah. in the in his letters yeah. at all? Yeah, definitely. The um, as far as the the racial element of the draft riots, yeah, it was kind of odd that it, it was. The draft riots were led largely by um, Irish immigrants who were in some way blaming the African-Americans for the Civil War. Like, this is your fault that this is all happening. And so that, that was a, a lot of the rioting was um, attacking the African-Americans. As far as uh, Henry's views, they really changed. Because you know, he's from this little town in Vermont. I doubt if he'd ever seen a black person prior to the war. And as, as uh, time went on, he, he's going to really be changing his feelings at one point. Uh, he writes home about how he met this young black guy who uh, he's writing about how intelligent he was, saying he should be going to college. Now, this is a point in time where, you know, very, very few people went to college. And he's writing that this former slave should be going to college. And there are a number of cases like that where he's going to be um, really impressed with them. Um, he refers to this quick-witted race of people that he's, he's found in the South. Yeah. Other questions? Yes. Did you ever find out? How the box of letters got into your father's attic? I think so. It's uh, it's all speculation, kind of. But um, I think what happened was when we we well, we tried to make the connection to the soldiers, and that took a long time, because it turns out my grandfather had been married twice. His first wife had died relatively young. It was through the family of his first wife that we finally made the connection to the soldiers. So it's not a real direct connection, but we think. What happened then was that the um, letters stayed with my grandfather, and then eventually, um, after he died, just with my grandmother. When she died, back around 1980, my father went up to um, New England, emptied out her house. We think what happened is he found this very old box of letters, said, I'm going to have to look at this someday, brought it home, stuck it in his attic, and I don't think he ever opened it up. I think it sat there until I found the the box sitting there in in the attic. During your talk, when you said Henry died, I was crushed. I wasn't expecting yeah. that. You just yeah. dropped it on us. I know, yeah. And, uh, yeah, the, uh, I, I just taught a course on this at, at uh, Carnegie Mellon. One of the people said that uh, they couldn't believe it. He started crying in the book <laughs> when he got to that part. Because uh, you, you do get to, and I get kind of choked up, especially in the longer course I teach, when I finally get to go through that whole thing and the description of it, because um, you really feel like you know these people. You really get uh, get close to them, and uh, so yeah, we were crushed too when we got to that part. Had you read about the Civil War? I mean, it, you said, and what was your field of study? If you have a PhD in history from yeah, I taught advanced placement U.S. history for many many years, high school level, plus survey courses in history at the Community College Allegheny County. But um, so I knew enough about the Civil War to teach the basics, you know, the major battles, major generals. I just didn't. I was in no way an expert on it. The, the book uh, is available on Amazon. It's uh, 19.95, or if you act now, <laughs> I, I do have copies with me that uh, you can have for the same 19.95, but no shipping, handling charges, taxes, nothing like that. And for an additional five cents, you can even have it signed by the author. So you can't beat that. So thank you all very much. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network.